Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Cloud9Fin, the last episode of the summer, in fact. So if you found time to listen to this before the holiday weekend, thank you very much. And if you're listening to it during the holiday weekend, well, we're extremely flattered. Thank you for your dedication. In this episode, we wanted to wrap up what has felt like a very strange summer. So we've invited Jeremy Burton from Pinebridge Investments to talk us through it all. So first things first, welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for joining us. And do you want to introduce yourself quickly? Hi, yeah, Jeremy Burton uh, with Pinebridge Investments. I'm a portfolio manager at Pinebridge uh, covering uh, high yield bonds and leverage loans. Great. Well, thanks for being with us. So I want to start off by talking about the the past couple of months. I mean, we're getting close to Labor Day weekend, as I mentioned, and it's been a kind of weird summer. The usual summer lull in debt issuance hasn't really happened. But I'm also hearing people, especially leveraged loan investors, say that they really wish that there was more supply over the past couple of months. And obviously, we had this huge rally in asset prices in July. And then in the past couple of weeks, that's really backed off, especially after Jay Powell's speech last week. And all the while, there's been a pretty full slate of stuff from geopolitics and inflation to the meme stock resurgence with Bed Bath & Beyond to kind of keep on top of. So do you think it's fair to say that the market is kind of confused right now and maybe looking for guidance? Yeah, well, look, this is the third straight, quote unquote, non-normal year, right? I mean, 2019 was really the last normal year. And the past three years have been abnormal, each in their own way, right? I mean, you had 2020, which is really the massive sell-off, and then the recovery, and the recovery in, in both secondary levels, but then also the primary markets really in the second half of the year, high yield first, but loans towards the end of the year. And 2021 was just such a you know, risk on everything year, everything went up, I mean, particularly when we think about the equity markets, and primary issuance was just at levels that probably will not be reached again anytime soon, uh, particularly from the you know, when you think about the amount of refinancing volume that was done, because rates, you know, particularly on the fixed side, were just so, I mean, all-time historical lows, right? You saw so many high-yield deals getting done. I mean, a four-handle coupon was not that low. There were a lot of three-handle coupons and even some two-handle coupons. And and this year, then things have changed. And of course, the you know, there's been a few things happening this year, but really by far the biggest is inflation and what the Fed's response to it has been. And obviously, the war in Ukraine and the supply chain issues and, and you know, China's zero COVID have been factors too, but the Fed is the overwhelming theme for this year. And so when we look at primary issuance, look, I mean, regardless of the seasonal patterns this year, yeah, we picked up a little bit in the summer because the market rallied, right? And we saw some dealers, I think, want to get some of these commitments off their balance sheets. You know, they saw where they were, you know, sort of internally marked at the end of the Ju end of June, and it was pretty ugly. And then July came and the market rallied and, you know, still taking losses on those deals, but clearly a lot less than they were forecasting at the end of Q2. And so, you know, I think that was really just the driver of the primary issues we saw this summer, you know, which was really primary in the loan market. When I think going forward for primary issuance, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, where we are now, clearly, I think there's almost very little refinancing activity that's going to happen anytime soon, really. It's hard to imagine that in the next 12 months, just given where uh, rates spreads are. So really, you're driven by LBOs and M&A. And, you know, LBO, it's always this, this circle, right, between, well, you know, there's no LBO financing if the sponsors aren't doing deals, but at the same time, the sponsors can't really do deals without financing, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, there's clearly, there's still this backlog of some deals that need to come to the market. There's, you know, if nothing happens over the next few days, there's going to be a couple of big ones, right, in this month. But, you know, I don't think there's some massive pipeline of deals beyond that out there that have been committed to. I think clearly private equity activity has been 
down this year. Um, you know, with respect to, oh, you know, it's it's sometimes, you know, sometimes there's so much primary issuance that you're like, why won't this slow down? And then, of course, there's other times when there's none. And particularly if you're put, looking to put cash together in that sort of environment, that can be very difficult. Um, right, right. You know, I'll tell you right now, when we're at a point in time where, you know, average price in the secondary market on the index is right around 95 or 96 or something like that, right? Um, it's tough when you're trying to spend cash and you're going on the secondary markets. You know, it's it's psychologically tough for the loans that you like paying 99 or 99 and a half for it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so when you don't have that primary issuance, that's what you're almost forced to do, essentially. Well, Got to be especially painful if you're running a CLO, right? Sure. Well, With... if you're running a CLO that is ramping up, sure, right. yes, it's painful. Yeah. Well, so or or a separate account or a fund that got an inflow. It's the same. It's the same issue, basically. Yeah, understood. Um, so I, I want to talk about LBOs a little bit more later on, um, but since we're kind of talking about portfolio management now, um, I want to talk about that a little bit first. So I, I feel like this kind of moment that we're in right now is the sort of ideal environment for people to talk about the virtues of active management. I mean, the momentum trade is well and truly off the table. Markets are going up and down quite drastically. And if you want to cut through the sort of daily volatility, you really need to do your credit work and pick names with a solid multi-quarter outlook. I mean, that's what I hear from people that we that we talk to on the buy side a lot. Um, so how much of your strategy right now is taking that kind of longer term view and how much of it is trading in and out of the market on a more sort of short term basis uh, amid these big ups and downs uh, so that you just don't end up kind of holding a, a big uh, a big cash position that, that drags on return? Right. Sure. So you're absolutely right. I, I, this is totally the market for that. This is the type of market where there are there should be divergences and outcomes amongst individual credits and sectors and and leverage profiles over the next 12 to 18 months. Absolutely. With the economy slowing and, and you know, we don't know where exactly it's going to end up, but there should be massive divergences. And that's what we've been spending a lot of our time on. The problem, of course, is and, you know, it's tougher to execute on those opinions, right? Liquidity in the, in the secondary market is just not what it was certainly last year. Um, it's we're not at levels like 20, you know, first, second quarter of 2020 in terms of bid ask, but bid ask is wider in both the high yield and the loan markets. You know, I think also in the high yield market, you saw this massive growth of portfolio trading last year where people were really able to get, you know, big repositionings done in a very cost efficient manner. And it's way less cost efficient now. Um, you know, the street clearly, I think, is really scaled back across the board on the amount of risk they're looking to hold on, on their trading desk books. And that's totally logical. Uh, the market is way more volatile day to day, right? And right. so, you know, they need to be more, you know, they're repositioning to be more in a, you know, uh, working in order to find a buyer or a seller versus just taking down pieces of paper and holding it until, you know, until you get to there, to, until you find the ultimate counterparty. So this shift that you're talking about in uh, in terms of liquidity and, and availability on, on trading desks and that kind of thing, do you think that that is a kind of longer term secular trend or, or, or one that's driven by the fact that the banks have, have taken quite a lot of pain this year? Or is it really just a kind of straight up reaction to market conditions in general? There was a massive shift in the fourth quarter of 2008 right. when, it, you know, when liquidity, you know, there was a step function down. Um, you know, I would say since then, it certainly the situation hasn't gotten better, but there's been, you know, it's been back and forth from year to year, essentially. Um, you know, in, in environments where the market is robust. And I would say 2021, I mean, 
you know, I think there was probably an uptick in the amount of risk dealers were looking to take, but it's it's demonstrably lower this year, and secondary volumes are 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 way down because of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it when you look at it from a buy side manager's perspective, right? I mean, like you said, this is a security selectors environment. You're looking to make those changes. You're looking to buy credits that you think are do have very positive trends over the next few quarters, and you're looking to exit credits where. You don't think that's the case, and the loan really hasn't traded off a lot, or the bond hasn't really traded off a lot. You know, the problem is that the bid ask, you know, last year to do that might have been, you know, half a point or something. And for size, it's materially wider this year. It really depends on the issue and what's going on that day, but it's tougher. And so you need to really focus on more of the higher conviction swaps that you have. You know, buying one thing and selling the other because you think one is like, you know, cheap by a point or something like that, it doesn't make sense in this market. Right. You're going to give all of that up on, on trading costs, essentially. Okay. All right. But that is generally what we're, you know, the stuff we're looking to do. The the repo- the, the broader repositioning stuff trading in and out of the market, you know, for someone like us, us we're a long only manager. We're typically not necessarily 100% invested, but we're pretty fairly fully invested unless there's an inflow or an outflow. But you know where we do have um, accounts that have off benchmark capacity, say a loan account that can buy high yield or CLOs or a high yield account that can do the same. Those are the trades we're doing, you know, around what our benchmark constraints are. Um, depending on what our views are of value between the high yield loan and CLO market. Right. Okay. And can I ask, are there any sectors that you guys are rebalancing out of in, in particular? Yeah, sure. It, it, it's, it's I would say, broadly looking to reduce our exposure to more cyclical sectors and increase our exposure to non-cyclical sectors. I don't know that from a an overall spread perspective, it necessarily means de-risking mm-hmm. um, because it you know, within the cyclical sectors, the names you're reducing, it's not just the really wide names. It might be some tight names as well that seem overvalued. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, cyclical worked really well last year, right? Uh, no way around it. Um, clearly, last year has been tougher. I think for us, when we saw the market rebound in July and August, um, we saw an opportunity that we needed to uh, get a little more defensive. I think, you know, looking at where the market was at the end of July, early August, our view on the economic outcome and particularly the probability that the Fed was actually going to pivot really quickly was just a little more bearish than whatever the market was. And so we have made a fair number of changes in the past few weeks that I think are working out well for us. Right. Okay. So in simple terms, the the rally in July, you guys felt like that was only ever going to be a short-term thing and it was a golden opportunity to kind of get, get out of some names that you didn't like and maybe get into some names that you like better um, to set your portfolio up for, for the longer term. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, look, when high yield OAS was at four fifteen or something like that, you know, I specifically, you know, we think about this all the time. You know, we always look at it in the context. Well, you know, what's more likely, a hundred tighter or a hundred wider, right? Or whatever that whatever that quantum is, seventy five hundred, whatever. And it seemed overwhelmingly likely that a hundred wider was materially more likely. You know, I think where we look at the market, I mean, I I still feel I still feel like we are not entering a massively incre- you know massively worse default in distress scenario that's not to say they won't increase because they're basically at, you know d- defaults have basically been at zero now for a year or so or a year and a half um but yeah I don't we don't see a 2015 2016 scenario like we saw in high yield or you know certainly not a great financial crisis scenario um you know that being said the next few quarters I think our position has been it's going to remain volatile, right? And so when we got close to 400 on OAS, that just seemed overdone. Right. Okay. And I want to talk about earnings in a bit more detail in a minute. But um, first, I just briefly want to talk about the Fed because it feels like that's been the the, the main thing that's been causing some of the big moves recently. Um, so I guess for 
for a long time, um, the the sort of creed was just buy the dip um, or or don't fight the Fed, which I guess means different things in different situations. But you know that that was a sort of pretty reliable trading strategy. Um, and then last Friday, there was the slide in markets after Jay Powell vowed to keep at it on on inflation, um, and that feels like it kind of just re-emphasized how important the the Fed Fed watching and kind of you know, figuring out what the Fed is going to do is in terms of managing a portfolio at the moment. But at the same time, we're kind of in uncharted territory for for monetary policy. So it feels like it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of importance on figuring out where the Fed is going to go. But at the same time, it's it's a lot harder than it ever has been maybe to, to figure out where the Fed is going to go. So what do you see as the Fed's most likely path going forward? And, and how do you think that is going to impact leveraged credit? Sure. I mean, you know, this year, the news flow on the macro side has really been dominated by just the changing market views from week to week and month to month, right, on you know, basically, you know, A, how far is the Fed going to go in terms of in terms of tightening? And then B, how quickly are, are they going to pivot back at the first sign of weakness in the economy? And, you know, you're right. Net, net, don't fight the Fed has worked in most situations over the past few years. But I think going back to particularly earlier in the year, the worst lesson that the market took was that they remembered the last time that fighting the Fed did play off, did mm-hmm. pay off, and it was, you know, it was it was Q4 18, Q1 19, where you know the Fed really pivoted very quickly at the first signs of market weakness, and then you had Powell, you know, come out. I think it was January 3rd, 2019, and it was like, okay, everything's done. Yeah. You know, yeah, this t- tightening is done. You know, we're not unwinding the balance sheet as quickly as we thought we were. Um, and I think a lot of people, particularly early, earlier this year, were looking at that and really thinking, oh, first sign of weakness, you know, Fed Fed is going to cave, right? Because that fighting the Fed did really work then. I mean, I know we normally say that in most cases it hasn't worked, it worked then. And, of course, the key difference between this year is that, you know, core CPI in Q4 of 18 was at 2%. And the expectations for core CPI were to remain at 2%. There was really no threat of inflation that, you know, 2018 was really more about the Fed wanting to get back to a quote unquote normal monetary policy after 10 years since the financial crisis of just absolute accommodation, right? And to give them, um, let's say, more of a toolkit to work with should the economy, you know, actually face problems. You know, the problem is when, yeah, you're, like when you're already a 1% policy rate, there's not a lot. Not a lot to do. And yeah. right, Europe, we've seen that constantly since the financial crisis. And, you know, anyways. Yeah. Um, now, I think at the end of the day, for me personally, and, you know, even with the, I su- even with our firm, and I suspect almost all firms, there are wide divergences on on opinion on this. You know, it's 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 easy to say, well, look at what happened in these prior cycles. But every cycle is different, right? And every experience is different. Um, you know, for me, at the end of the day, look, the dual mandate of the Fed is price stability and maximum employment. It is not necessarily GDP growth. It is not necessarily, you know, while market stability has clearly become, since the financial crisis, an important part of of monetary policy, you know, preventing 10% swings in the market, that's not really part of their mandate. And I think until unemployment materially cracks, I just just don't see this changing. Um, You know, this idea that I think a lot of people had after July, you know, in July and early August that the first sign of inflation coming down that that was the end of the tightening regime. No way. I, I just, I never saw that. I don't see it now. Um, you know, I mean, five, six percent inflation is still a lot. It's funny what you just said, because I feel like if you started off your career in, in credit markets, um, over the past, like 
at some point in the past decade, maybe, you could probably be forgiven for thinking that the the Fed's mandate was actually to keep asset prices on a kind of stable upward trajectory, right? That was the sort of the buy the dip mentality. So do you think that the market sort of collectively maybe lost sight of of what the Fed's true kind of uh, mandate is? And, and that's maybe the source of some of the problems that we're seeing today? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in some ways, you know, that, that when we go back to 2018, the Fed was looking to really exit this like period of that uh, well, of extreme no, of just extreme monetary policy. And look, you 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 can forgive people too because the psyche of the decade after the financial crisis, we were just in that financial crisis psyche still, right? That there was always something right around the corner. That I mean, when you think about everything that happened in the years to come after the financial crisis, think about the European crisis. You think about you know the taper tantrum, and I mean we we were still in that jittery mode, right? But ten years was enough. And, you know, the Fed tried to get to more of a normal situation and then COVID happened. Right. And it was this, you know, obviously different people have different political views on the government's response to COVID. But it was somewhat of a self-imposed, just massive cliff on the economy. And the Fed did everything in its power to prevent the market from falling apart. And look, there were a few days in March 2020 when I think things were looking a little scary from just the market imploding all of a sudden, much more so than it had. I mean, when you look at what was going on in the treasury market, I mean, it was just things were not normal, right? Um, but, you know, that's over, right? And then, of course, we created on the backside this just like over hyper demand scenario and hyper run up in asset prices because of it. Um, and, you know, it just it led to inflation, right? And uh, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the Fed's toolkit is obviously it's somewhat limited because, I mean, many of the drivers of inflation are not ne- not just necessarily um, demand in the U.S. I mean, clearly we have uh, the you know, remaining supply chain issues. We have energy prices that are really high, and particularly in Europe, extremely high and, and potentially facing shortages, um, as well as just what's gone on in the labor market in the U.S. I, you know, there are clearly seems to be some structural issues here that it's not, this is not just going to be impacted mm-hmm. by short-term changes in monetary policy. Um, people want to work differently than they did three years ago prior to COVID. Um, and some people work less. And so that could take some time to overcome, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think I think higher for longer at the end of the day. Right. Okay. So um, labor, obviously one of the issues that companies are, are facing, inflation, supply chain disruption. I mean, it's it's a really difficult um, kind of backdrop for, for companies right now in, in many ways. Um, but the general consensus so far seems to be that with some some notable exceptions, earnings in leveraged credit in the second quarter have actually been pretty solid so far. So what are your biggest takeaways from the second quarter when you look at your portfolio and the leveraged credit space in general? Yeah, I mean, I mean, clearly, you know, I think Q2, you know, Q1, there was probably you know, a fair number of, I would say, materially negative surprises, not just within leveraged finance, but the equity markets as well. I think um, Q2, a combination of things. One, I think that, you know, first of all, expectations were kind of reset a little, I wouldn't say lower just, but, you know, more expectations for um, in the market that there's a lot of abnormal things going on in a lot of companies right now. And there's a lot of transition, you know, companies are sort of transitioning just to deal with inflation and some of the lingering supply chain issues and not even the direct supply chain issues. Often it's like indirect, right? It's not 
it's not that you're having issues, but your customer's having issues, right? And so, of course, then the customer needs less stuff. And that stuff just takes a few quarters for a lot of companies to like really deal with. Some companies longer, right? Um, so that's one thing. I think mar market expectations were just reset a little bit for a little more, uh, you know, volatility, particularly in earnings margins, uh, at least over a short-term period. But yeah, I mean, I think overall there were way more positive surprises than negative surprises, I think particularly amongst the, the public filers, uh, which is sort of the earlier, you know, more high yield skewed uh, than loans. But there have been some outliers. I mean, I mean, I think, you know, whether it's companies that are taking longer than expected um, to be able to pass through costs, whether it's companies where, you know, demand was just so strong in 2021 for whatever their product or service was. And there's, you know, a realization that that's, you know, some of these companies are never going to get back to those numbers, right? You know, that some of those COVID positive um, issuers and sectors. Um, yeah, a lot of people pulling back on headcount. You know, maybe overhired during the pandemic to kind of yeah, it's, fuel it's, it's, that hyper growth. It's interesting on that because I mean, I you know, we when you look at the economic numbers, there's still not a lot of weakness in the job market. I think a lot of the headlines have been more, you know, I would say, tech companies. Um, you know, quote unquote tech. Tech means such a large array of things, but you know, particularly on companies where it's maybe they're profitable, but they're not at like optimum profitability. They're still kind of reliant on some sort of, of capital markets funding, you know, if they wanted to continue to grow their business. And just like in prior cycles, okay, things slow down, you know, particularly anything that's like advertising driven or something like that, or indirectly advertising driven, um, you, you got to let people go. Um, mm -hmm. Because clearly there were a lot of those companies were over hiring, right, last mm -hmm. year, um, given the challenges in the labor market. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think... Um, yeah, overall, definitely Q2, I would say, I would say better than Q1 in terms of positive versus negative mix of surprises. And we saw that in equity. I mean, you know, it's easy to go look at a heat map of this for like the S&P 500 or something like that. You see the exact same thing. Okay, so a, a slightly um, kind of philosophical or maybe historical question for you now. Um, the move wider in markets this year has obviously caused a lot of pain for underwriters. Um, and at the same time, it's allowed private credit funds to flex their muscles and put a lot of the huge amounts of cash that they've raised over the past few years to work. And at the same time as the banks have been, you know, taking taking pain and, and kind of offloading underwritten LBO financings at, at huge discounts. Um, and now you're seeing some of the banks like JP Morgan, for example, has been quite explicit about this. And there was talk about Barclays doing the same thing, setting up divisions within the bank to make loans off their own balance sheet. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly was a massive amount of money raised in private debt over the past you know, five years or so or something like that. Right. And that had had an impact. Really, the biggest impact of it was disintermediating the underwriters. Right. Because for everything that is being bought direct, you know, for everything that's for every LBO that's being committed to at the time of deal signing by private debt, that is fees that are not going to underwriters, right? And I mean, they're not fans of this, right? I mean, it's I've I've heard I've heard, you know, syndicated buy side people complain to the to the underwriters before that, oh, why aren't we getting a look at these deals? They're going straight to private. And of course, the underwriters are like, we would love to syndicate <laughs> these deals, right? I mean, this is prior to the volatility of this year, right? That's their business. That's a awesome business for them because they get a you know relatively decent amount of fees for a relatively short term commitment. And of course, when the market tanks, it you take your pain and right you you have deals. You have to resyndicate at discounts. But look, 
for whatever pain they're taking this year, they made a lot of fees in tw- in second half of 2020 and and all of 2021 on underwriting, you know, high yield and and new issue loans. So I don't, I'm not feeling badly for them. I'm sure they're still, uh-huh. uh, you know, enjoying their lives. Um, but look, I mean, given that all this capital was raised in private debt, we kind of were set up for a scenario where we have seen volatility this year where, you know, private debt players can step in. And I think particularly when you think you think about, you know, private credit means and private debt means a lot of different things. It could mean lending $75 million, you know, unitronch to some company that does $15 million of EBITDA, right? The, the small cap sort of traditional private debt. And then it can mean what we've seen the past few years, there's really this large cap private credit, right? Where you've seen massive funds raised by the very large asset managers and all asset managers, and they're able to commit, you know, billion dollar tickets and stuff like that, right? That's not, that's, I, I it, to me, it's, it's sort of philosophically hard to call that really private credit. Um, it's almost more like a lightly syndicated um, sort of, sort of deal, right? Because many of these are, you know, it's a few different players, right? It's just not getting broadly syndicated and there's no underwriting fee on it. Will it change the banks? I mean, I don't know at the end of the day. It's hard to make long-term calls based off of short-term volatility, right, and changes in business practices. Um, there's all sorts of reasons why they've got, the banks have really gotten out of the leveraged lending, like buying old, you know, underwriting hold business. Um, it's certainly way less capital, you know, way less uh, attractive from a capital and uh, return on capital perspective than underwriting. Um, and so I don't know that it's necessarily going uh, away, you know, over time, I'm, I'm sure they'll all try to pivot their business models to save whatever fees they can and, you know, avoid losing market share. Um, but um, it's hard to make long term calls in a year like this where private primary market issuance is just like very, very low. OK, well, we should wrap it up there. But Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Will, for having me here. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks again for tuning in and lending us your ears. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with anyone else you think might be interested. And don't forget to check in next Thursday with my colleagues in London for the latest on European markets. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. So as always, until then, take care.